Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. So, we're in the midst of our uh, sermon series on Nehemiah. And uh, this last week we were talking about chapter 2, and this week we're going to skip to chapter 4. But I wanted to uh, point out that chapter 3 is loaded with dozens and dozens of names of people that sought to partner with Nehemiah and the vision that God placed upon his heart. There were 39 groups of people that came together to rebuild 35 different sections of the wall. This could only be considered a God-sized dream for a mosaic of people who came together in an outpouring of love to take on such a dream like this. We'll be focusing on chapter 4 today, like I said, but I want to invite you on your own time to go back to chapter 3 and take a deeper look at, at those who joined in the movement of God and work in their community. I'll refer to them a little bit as we go through the text today. But if you would, indulge me with a, with a posture of prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, and kindle in us the fire of your love. Renew a right spirit within us and set our sights on loftier dreams than our own. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and the strength to do that which you call us to do. And may the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. So we'll be looking at uh, chapter 4 in Nehemiah, verses 1 through 9, which read this. Blinded by the light there. Now when Sanballat had heard that we were building the wall, he, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he mocked the Jews. And he said in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burden ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he, he kind of sneered. That stone wall they're, they're building. Well, any fox going up on it would break it down for sure. Hear, O, hear, o God, for we are, Nehemiah says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Please turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them, please, make make plunder in their land of captivity and do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have hurled insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So now we were so now this beautiful story of a boy who was raised in captivity who found favor in the eyes of a king and is called to carry out a God-sized dream is interrupted by this long list of names in chapter 3. It's a list of names of the people who not only saw the dream that was placed upon Nehemiah's heart, but they were moved as well, moved to engage, and, and they took action in something that was bigger than themselves. They took on the impossible, rebuilding out of rubble, a wall nearly 40 feet high and some places 30 feet wide that went the length of over two miles. This impossible dream began an overwhelming flood of support and teamwork. Some 39 groups of people from all walks of life rebuilding 35 sections of the great God-sized dream. Against all odds, Nehemiah gathers these groups together and makes sure they get credit for their efforts in chapter 3. At least at first look, that's what it looks like, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I come across a, a long length of names in the Bible like that, and I think, okay, it's time to take a nap, right? Am I the only one that thinks that way? Or, or well... My guess is, by your response, you don't do that. You came across this list and it intrigued you so much that you dug deeper. You wanted to find out more of who these people were, didn't you? I'm on to you. Think about this for a moment. There was a man on the list named Shalom. He was a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. He had 12 daughters, 12. Can you imagine what his bathroom was like? I wonder if that's important. And I think, I think it is. I think it's a big deal. 12 daughters and a dad took a section of the wall and said, let's get to work. We'll do this. We want to be a part of the dream that God has placed on your heart, Nehemiah. Give us a trowel. Let us do this work together. And then there was Pastor Zadok, who took on a section right in front of his house because, you know, that's what pastors do, right? But he was, there was something in the way that he was doing it that brought other pastors in. They naturally wanted to be a part of that movement, and so they, they started doing the work in front of Pastor Zadok's house, and then they moved over to the Lutheran church, Parsonage, and then to the, okay, you see what I'm saying though, they, there was something engaging and electric about it, and, and it started to happen and transpire and draw people in. There was a man named Mahala, who was a notor notorious agitator. He was one who was angrily against the beginning of the movement when it originally started with Ezra. And lo and behold, something within his heart changed. And he even warmed up 
to the God-sized dream that was before Nehemiah. His His heart was strangely warmed, as John Wesley would say. And his response was, give me a trowel. Point me in to a section of the wall. I want in. I want to be a part of this too. It's important, don't you think? Everyone is taking a part and working on this immense renovation. The poor get recognized in chapter 3. The oppressed get recognized in chapter 3. Even a former oppressor gets recognized. Or how about this? The professionals that joined in, they were goldsmiths. They laid down their tools of intricacy and delicacy and exchanged them for hammers and trowels. The hands of artists ready and willing to subject themselves to blisters and calluses. The text says there was also noblemen who heard and came and jumped right in. Think about it now, limousines pulling up and aristocrats exiting them to join alongside peasants in this God-sized dream of a renovation. I think it must have been just like the dog pound at Cleveland Stadium, where all walks of life come together to cheer on the underdog. And how about that win? If nothing else, you should say amen to that. Yeah, most Sundays. Well, it was a Thursday, actually, but that's okay. It, it still counts, right? And we can't forget about... Kathy, you'll like this. We can't forget about the perfumers that joined in to help. Can you imagine? I kind of, I kind of, I thought of Kathy and I got the giggles when I read this. I I imagine um, pink chariots pulling up with Mary Kay stickers on the back, right? I mean, they came to help. Like if I, if I were there, like I want to I want to work downwind from where the perfumers are because you know it smells the best, right? Think about this amazing group of people coming together to rally around this vision, putting aside their differences and uniting together, creating a flood of generosity and encouragement for the sake of unifying their their efforts to renovate a community, a place where the young and old, the wise and simple sophisticated and common, came together to be inspired by a life-giving leader, and together they began to participate in God's dream. And so began the real work of Nehemiah, where inspiration is turned into perspiration, and he begins the charge of leading this amazing group of people, this diverse group of people. They, They say all people have the ability, all people, have the ability to either build you up or tear you down. My guess is that Nehemiah was chosen by God because he had this gift of encouragement. He had the incredible ability to equip and empower people. He didn't micromanage or abuse his power. He simply engaged those around him and inspired them to come alongside, to be a part of an outpouring of love, generosity, and labor. Reading this just makes me want to jump in and be a part of it too, does it not? Doesn't it to you? I I think, put me in a section, hand me a trowel, give me a stone, strengthen my resolve to make a difference. Don't you want to be a part of a movement like that? 
I do. However, in today's world, we can't seem to agree on anything. It feels like we're supposed to get to second guess everyone and be a Monday morning quarterback on everything. Even a former president, for the first time in history, is voicing his opinion on the work of a sitting president. Not saying that it wasn't worth listening to or anything, but what happened to going off into retirement and opening up a half a dozen libraries with your name on it, right? Being content with the spotlight that you used to have, not trying to drum up new business. It seems like everyone is a commentator and everyone has an opinion. These days, it, it just seems like it. And it can really be tiring when you think about it. I can't help in my own mind as things happen be reminded of the Charlie Brown Christmas special in particular in the classroom where the teacher is going you know what I'm saying I mean I think I got it right don't you wish you could be a part of something bigger than that like building here, right here at Willoughby UMC, where we could come together and serve the community and make them feel loved and wanted during the dinners on Wednesday night. My heart truly felt strangely warmed Wednesday night, this past Wednesday, when Nancy, who's, raise your hand, Nancy. God love you. It's okay. Nancy, we've been serving her, and, and like Wednesday night, Last couple nights, she, she's been going out there after dinner, after she eats, and washing the dishes. Like, she's serving us now. I want to be a part of a movement like that. Or another gentleman who took it upon himself Wednesday night to, to put on a pair of gloves and start, start cleaning tables. Nobody asked him to. He just did it. He saw the movement of God and wanted to be a part of it. Don't you want to be a part of a dream like that? A dream where we can partner with a local elementary school and mentor kids that are at risk of slipping through the cracks of the system. Don't you want to come alongside our teachers and say, how can I help your students succeed? How can I help you succeed? Don't you want to strengthen our relationships that we have with the McKinley Center, with the food pantry, or even the Tikva house and see the miracles of God that are being done through these amazing ministries. I know I do, I do. Or how about walking along someone who is grieving to offer a whisper of hope, a word of encouragement, a warmth of love, letting them know that they're not alone in this journey that they're on. Don't you just wanna be a part of a place where people say, let's get up and renovate something or someone Let's do this. Hand me a trowel. Give me a stone. Assign me a section of the wall. I want to be a part of a God-sized dream. Don't you want to be a place of healing? Don't you want to be a place of encouragement? Don't you want to be a place of building a life with God and with others? Amen, if you want me to keep on going. I don't know if I believed you. Amen? Don't you want to be a place where people matter more than furniture or fixtures? A place where people matter more than seating preferences? A place where people matter more than worship styles? A place where people matter more than 
personal preference or recognition because all the glory should be going to God anyway. Quite simply, don't you want to be a place where people matter, where they really matter most of all? I believe if we can be a place like that, resources will come, hearts will be changed, transformation can and will occur. It sounds like a place where Jesus would want to hang. And I believe where Jesus hangs, and you all know this, people tend to crowd around. Amen? You see, the real renovation project is around the lives of human beings. For God, it's always been this way. God has never cared as much about the building as he has for the hearts of the people. I think that's the one main reason that Jesus destroyed and rebuilt the temple in three days. He tore down the bricks and mortar that were being idolized and created a noon temple within the hearts of his people. Back to Nehemiah now and the disruption of this God-sized goal that has been created. You know, the renovation of a community. We see a mosaic of people coming together, engaged in a major renovation. The walls halfway built, the vision coming to fruition, the dream becoming reality. And all of a sudden, the Monday morning quarterbacking starts with a sarcastic criticism and a backbiting opposition to the work that is being done. Now, I'm not opposed to criticism, especially when it's done in a constructive manner. But it's said that there are two types of people that cut meat for a living. Do you know which two I'm talking about? It's a butcher and a surgeon. And they cut meat for two entirely different reasons. You know what I'm saying? You know the differences, right? The butcher simply cuts meat so it can be consumed. But a surgeon, on the other hand, cuts meat in a delicate way in which healing can take place. There's a difference there, isn't it? I mean, really, if, if I have to get a, a knee replacement done, I'm choosing a surgeon, wouldn't you? Sometimes criticism comes from people who deeply care and they present it in a way that's loving because they care. For example, this past week I had a dear saint invite me to coffee. So we went and we had coffee and after our getting our coffee I thought, oh boy, here it comes, right? We sat down and the first question out of this saint's mouth was, how are you doing? How is it with your soul? I almost started to cry that she asked me that. I thought, here's somebody who cares. Here's somebody who I'm willing to take criticism from because she did it in the right way. Because it wasn't coming from a place of frustration. It was just coming from a place of love. One po poet put, said it this way, that a true critic offers suggestions in the way of a light rain, as it falls on the life of a tree, seeping into the ground, offering nourishment to sustain and build life, not to overwhelm or undermine the root system of the tree that could cause damage or even uproot the tree itself. Can you hear the difference? Nehemiah 4 says this, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he mocked the Jews 
And he said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they be able to revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burdened ones at that? When you're in the midst of a renovation, especially a spiritual one where you're seeking to grow closer to God, you're going to face opposition. It's inevitable. And the funny thing about opposition, sometimes it it can be in a lame way. Take, for example, Tobiah's remarks. Tobiah, Tobiah, the Amnonite beside him, said this, sneering, I'm sure, that stone wall they're building, any fox going up there would break it down. Isn't that funny? A classic example of a bully's evil sidekick trying to add insult to injury. Really, Tobiah, a fox, one of the most agile creatures that's not much bigger than a cat? That's all you got? That's what's going to tear down the wall? I can remember the year I got my braces as a kid. Bugs Bunny was my nickname for a long time, and and he had nothing on me. I heard the names Bucktooth Beaver and so on. Children can be so cruel, can't they? But it was that name that they associated with me that kind of, that kind of motivated me to go through, fight through my fears and get braces. I can remember thinking, I'll show you, I'll get the braces and have perfect teeth someday. Well, I don't know what was worth, Bucktooth Beaver or Metal Mouth Grill Face. You know what I'm saying? Can you relate to that? Have you ever been a time in your life where someone you told, told you that you weren't good enough or you weren't fast enough? You weren't reliable enough, you weren't smart enough, you weren't coordinated enough. Or how about this, you weren't beloved enough. Beloved enough for God to want to do a work in your life. Tuesday night, I was invited to the Tikva house meeting with a bunch of men that were in the midst of a deep spiritual renovation. I can recall one of them sharing how hard it was was at being clean and sober, how isolating it was because the friends that he once had no longer could be, he could no longer be around because the only thing that they had in common were the drugs and alcohol. The old friends through taunts or pleas couldn't handle the fact that this person was getting their life back together. Could, they couldn't handle, he was going through a, a renovation. Their mocking, I believe, came from a, a place of jealousy. My guess is they longed for a renovation of their own heart, but they didn't have the courage or strength or someone cheering them on to to make a renovation of their own. So it naturally became easier for them to become a Tobiah as opposed to becoming a cheerleader, supportive and encouraging. That's what's going on in Nehemiah. And I love what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't take the bait. He just simply says, hear, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their taunts back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Don't cover their guilt and don't let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have hurled insults to the face of the builders, to those who are, who are fulfilling your dream. Basically, Nehemiah was saying, We're rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of us and sticks to you. You remember that? Did it work? 
It sounded good, but it still stung, right? Warren Buffett puts it this way. You will continue to suffer if you have an emotional reaction to everything that is said to you. True power is sitting back and observing things with logic. True power is restrained. If words control you, that means everyone else can control you too. Breathe and allow things to pass. I'm not much of a Warren Buffett follower, but like those sound like good words of advice, don't they? I can tell I must still be a work in progress, you know, moving on to perfection, as the, as the bishop asked, uh, which some days feels like a million miles away. Because for me, sometimes it's easy to allow cutting words of others to find ways, their way past the, the armor that we're supposed to wear. John Wesley was once preaching in a crowd, and there was a man that would have no part of the, the message that Mr. Wesley was proclaiming. So the man began hurling insults, trying to distract him and deter him from the message that he had prepared. And when words wouldn't do the trick, he picked up pebbles and then stones and started hurling them at him. After Mr. Wesley, Reverend Pastor Wesley was done, he went up to the man and he says, what do you suppose you ought to do with a gift that has been given you, but you don't want it? Do you think it'd be wise just to give it back to the to the giver. And the man thought for a minute, he goes, yeah, I think, I think that would be the right thing to do. Then, sir, I don't accept your insults and your abuse. You can have it all back. You can have it all back. And he walked away, and he walked away. In Nehemiah's counsel, he reminded the people of who they were, of who they were working for and who they belonged to. And finally, who would pick up the fight for them? The God of Israel, Isaac and Jacob. The God that delivered them out of Egypt. The God that says, you are my beloved, my chosen, and I will never forsake you. And with that, with that reminder, they got back to work. So they rebuilt the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. They had a heart to work, the scripture says. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls were continuing and going forward, they got even more angry. It's funny how evil works, how bullies, how bullies, when they don't get their way, find themselves having to having to ramp up their ploys to, to the next level to try to disrupt the progress being made. Negative comments, insults, and childish cutdowns weren't enough to deter Nehemiah and the people that, brought, that bought into this vision. So now, like children throwing a temper tantrum, Sanballat and Tobiah must go back to their evil lair and begin plotting and re recruiting to come up with something more powerful something more sinister to invoke fear amongst the people. I wonder, what, what was Sanballat and Tobias so afraid of? Was their fear based on the fact that they didn't like change? Or could it have been the fear of losing control? You see, for the first time in Sanballat's position, he was witnessing a unifying of all the people, a coming together for a common mission. 
he was starting to really lose control over his territory. His tyrant tactics of leadership were losing its grip, which ultimately meant that he too would have to change. But what if you are entrenched? And I believe Sandblot was entrenched. He opposed change, so the only thing he knew how to do was to become more vigorous in the way he reacted to things. If words couldn't deter them, then maybe physical attacks could. These two, so opposed to the dream of, of God, became like butchers, bad butchers, simply wanting to hack and whack, only wanting to see pain and suffering brought on. They were the worst kind of crit critics, the kind that only seek to cause pain and disruption, the kind that only seek to feel better about themselves. Winston Churchill had one of those types of critic in his life. Her name was Lady Astor. There was one time at dinner, in one of the many dinners, where she sarcastically said to him, you're drunk again, I, I can see. If I was your wife, I would poison your drink. To that, Winston Churchill replied, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would gladly drink the poison. <laughs> you know, there's something, there's something both joy, there's something about both joy and misery that is communicable, that's infectious, that's contagious. Both joy and misery. I wonder, is it joy or is it misery that we are exuding when people are around us? When people are around us, are they so inspired that they want to join in the God-sized God dream or are they wanting to drink the poison? I wonder. Nehemiah was exuding joy. He was inspiring people to come alongside, to get their hands dirty, to even perspire a little. Well, probably a lot. Sanballat and Tobiah, on the other hand, were spewing poison. They were caustic, bullies, miserable with their own lives, and for some reason, they felt compelled to spread their misery around. I wonder, I do, if we can be a, a community, a nation, a people like Nehemiah and those he was leading that would start to pray for our leaders, to start to rebuild our communities, to be encouraged to maintain a balance between work, a work with a trowel in one hand and, and a prayer or a sword in the other. Because that's what Nehemiah is suggesting, to stay steady on, to do the work, to rotate out, but to be vigilant and aware that you have opposing forces. If we could gather in the mosaic of love, partnering with God, discovering his dream for this church and the community, I wonder, I wonder if we would be able to exude joy in the work that we do. Can this be a safe place free of butchers where hope can be offered where love can reign, where, where we can join in community life together and allow a renovation of the heart, mind, and soul to take place. Can it be? Can it be? Would you pray with me? A gracious and loving God,
may it be so. May this place be a safe haven, a place of inspiration, a place where we can work alongside each other and perspire a little bit for the sake of fulfilling your dream, for renovating our hearts, for renovating a community, for renovating the world. Allow us to be people where your love just flows freely from our hearts, our minds, our souls, our mouths, our looks, our actions. May we have the eyes to see those who matter to you, the hearts to care enough to do something about it, and the strength and courage to be bold, to say, here I am, Lord, Show me a section. Give me a trowel. Let me be a participant in your dream. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like to contact the church for more information or to speak with one of our pastors, please call us at 440-942-9068. Background music for this recording provided by Ben Sound. Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. I wonder if you'd take on a posture of prayer. You are above all names, Jesus. We pray for an invitation of your Holy Spirit to come into this place and open our ears, our minds, and our hearts to be able to receive the whisper of your voice in the message that you've prepared today. Like this song that we've been singing, help us to be conduits of your love to those around us, Lord. We call on all the realms of the heavenly to be in this place now and to reveal in us the change that you still wish to make in us for the sake of your glory. Amen. Please be seated. So we're in our fifth week of this Renovate series. And we've been through a lot. We've been through the fact that Nehemiah has been placed with an impossible dream upon his heart. We've read where he's responded to a king as a cupbearer, taking a risk by answering a question, what, what's so heavy on your heart, Nehemiah? For sharing that dream with a king and for that king to say, what do you need to make this a reality? And then for him to go and do a recon plan and and see what really needs to be done and then to get buy-in from the people around him, to face adversity of critics, to accomplishing a great feat, an impossible God-sized dream. And so now the walls have been built, the gates have been hung, and we come to the point in the story where we read from Nehemiah 8, 
When the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their towns, all the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the book, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for him for the purpose For this purpose. And beside him stood his associate pastors. And if you want to know their names, please look it up because I don't want to butcher them. But there were associate pastors on his right and associate pastors on his left. And the one that I will point out is the one name that I can pronounce, Uriah. But there's more there. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So at first glance, as we've been going through this story, is one might think, that the renovation that Nehemiah was called was to simply rebuild the wall. But the reality is, as it began as a renovation project of of the wall, it became a renovation project of a community. But now it moves into a renovation of a heart, of the heart. You see, the you see, the, the congregation that I'm talking about is the people that came to hear what Ezra had to say. In chapter 7 of Nehemiah, it says that the number is over 42,000. 42,000 people have come back, and that's the congregation that Ezra has before him. Ezra and his pastoral staff of associates 6 and 6, right? And they're standing before Nehemiah, or I mean Ezra, wanting to, wanting to have a renovation of the heart to take place. Oh, and by the way, a mighty choir showed up too. 245 member choirs showed up. Like, I think, our, I think our choir could compete. I really do. Maybe not on that kind of volume, but, but they poured out their hearts today, much like the choir that was assembled that day to sing praises. You see, I believe it started with a, a renovation of the heart because what Ezra was asked to do was to bring the original intention of God's law to the people. And so, I believe, now it says, the text says that he read it from the early morning through midday. Now I don't know if he was a slow reader, but but uh, 
But I, I, I imagine, I imagine that he had brought the same points over and over and over until the people got it. So what is the text that Ezra would have read for that congregation? My guess would, would be it would have came from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, which read this. Then God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's reminding the people of where they came from. Of what situation that they had endured for 400 years. And how God had listened to the cry of the people and responded in love, in kindness, in liberation. You shall have no other gods before me. If you remember the story, they veered from that a little bit and made a golden calf. Short-term memory, I guess. You, he goes on, you shall not make for yourself an idol whether in the form of anything that is on heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or what is in the water of the earth. Now, i got to admit that <clears throat> I probably stayed up way too late for a pastor last night. If you watched Ohio State football, you know what I'm talking about. And I was praying, I was, I was on a roller coaster of emotions, and I will admit that although Ohio State is my favorite team, the Buckeyes, the football team to be specific, I can't say that they're my idol any longer. Now, when we lived down in Columbus and before I knew Christ, that may have been a different story, right? Because if you've ever been in Ohio Stadium, when they do script Ohio, the hairs on your arms stand up and you get goosebumps. It feels like a godly experience. But God is saying, you shall have no idol. Nothing should be placed before me. Now, rooting for the Buckeyes may be a far stretch for an idol. But can you imagine and think for a moment what could be considered an idol? Could it be a collection of cars? Could it be a mansion on a hill? Could it be the things that we put into our bodies? Could it be the things that we seek to fill our day with? I'm just saying, God wants to be first in everything that we do. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below. Not even deep sea fishing can be an idol for us. My translation. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for inequity, iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. 
but showing, this is what I love, but showing steadfast love, love that never ends and cannot be quenched to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses my name. Now, so often we're quick to, to think of curse words or, or the name that uh, the mechan- local mechanic uses when he busts his knuckles. When the rich wrench slips. You know what I'm saying? But I don't think this is what he's talking about. I think, I think when we invoke God's name to try to create a change in somebody else, because we want to simply just change that person, or, or we try to invoke a reverential fear when it's not our place to do so. I think that's what he might be talking about here. I could be wrong. I would ask for forgiveness if I am. But it just so happens to be that sometimes, sometimes we use God's name to manipulate or change behavior. Not for the sake of good, but for the sake of selfish reasons. I often say there's two things that I'm really bad at. First is being a savior. Thank God for Jesus. And second, trying to convict somebody to change. Sure, I can manipulate with the best of them, but that only brings about change that is short-term. The true convictor that can convict permanent change is the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Remember the day... Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. You shall not work. Your son or daughter shall not work. Your male or female slave shall not work. Your livestock shall not serve. Or Or even the alien resident in your towns... For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. It's important to have that day to be renewed and refreshed and restored by God. Because you can't give what you don't have. And if I had to phrase it a different way, you're doing for God has to come from a place of being with God. Do you follow me? Does that make sense? I mean, you can't give what you don't have. And if you're not being fed by God, then how can you carry out the purpose for God? Amen? Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. Now, I hope throughout the week I get all kinds of calls from moms and dads that say, I don't know what you said, Pastor, but my son or daughter called me this week and told me how much I love them. Note to self, call your mom. 
and dead. You know, there's, there's purpose in that. And as a father of a, of a, of a child who's getting ready to bridge that gap from, from childhood to those teenage years, there's one thing that I keep trying to instill is sugar or sweetness goes way farther than vinegar or sourness. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you uphold the biblical principle of honoring your father and your mother with that sweet attitude, like that goes a long way. But if you're resistant and sour, you just make it harder on yourself. You know what I'm saying? Can I move on? I didn't hear a yes, so I'll... Okay, all right. Another big one, you shall not murder. I want to share a story that, uh, about how we can murder and not even know it. How we can murder when we think we're being helpful. About 10 years ago, I had a, had a friend of mine that I connected with. Hadn't, hadn't heard from him in probably 20 years. And we were calling and, and we were trying to make plans on how we could connect with each other and, and reunite. And, and so I threw out a date for a weekend and he says, well, I can't, I can't meet you that weekend. I, I'm, I've got plans. I said, like, oh, okay. He said, well, no, you'd appreciate it being you're going to be a pastor and everything. I said, well, what, what are your plans? He says, well, uh, I'm going to go protest at, a, at an abortion clinic. You know, that whole thou shalt not murder thing. And I'm like, oh, tell me more. And he proceeded to tell me about the posters he had made and, and um, the in-your-face in kind of demonstration that they were going to uh, do. And I, and I got kind of quiet. And he goes, what's going on? And I said, um, well, I said, do you ever, un, you ever even think what, what, how that uh, type of behavior might be received? I said, let me tell you a story of somebody I met in seminary who was in college on her way home from a study hall who got attacked brutally and raped and ended up pregnant. And she struggled with that and she wanted wanted to go to an abortion clinic. But through lots of prayers ended up not going. And now she she has this beautiful son that she wouldn't trade for the world. And the scary thing is every time she sees him, she sees a part of her rapist. I said, if you really want to make a difference, why don't you walk alongside one of these women? Get to know their story. Offer your house to them and walk with them through the term. Adopt their child. Because my guess is they're going through enough as it is. You see, we can murder people on a whole host of ways that we don't even realize. When we think we're doing good and, and we're really not. I just, I just said, think about it. Think about it. 
How about you pray for these brave women that have to make tough choices? How about you enter into their life and see what kind of hope you can bring them? You you shall not commit adultery or steal or bear false witness. You should not covet your neighbor's house or covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or sea ray or ski or ATV or house or Ferrari or whatever it is. You shall not covet. And you see, when Ezra, Pastor Ezra, was standing there before the people, called to lead a renovation of a new kind, a spiritual renovation, a renovation of the heart. He brought forth the word of God. How many times have you heard, I'm standing on the word of God, right? I'm standing on the word of God when it really should be, the word of God is standing over me. So often we want to take the word of God and put it in people's faces and say, you're not living up. You're not holding on, holding up your end of the bargain. Instead of realizing that the renovation starts here with us. It does. When you can open up the word of God and pray, God reveals something to me that I need to change. God reveals something in me where I'm missing the mark, where I am not being enough like Jesus. Amazing things can happen. I admitted that I stayed up way too late last night. And in preparation for that, I, uh, I ordered a pizza from a local establishment. And so... It had been a place that I had visited because I believe as as your pastor, it's my job to go out there into the community. And everybody's got to eat, amen? I had been to this place during a lunch hour one time and and, uh, I met um, the waitress and and, uh, and the only reason I remembered her her name is because her name was rather unusual. And uh, I said, boy, that sounds like an old school name. There's got to be a story. And she goes, well, maybe I'll tell you someday. So as I went to pick up the pizza last night, I, I, uh, she, was there, she was working. And I said, hey, how you doing? Called her by name. And uh, she kind of looked at me shocked that I called her by name. And she goes, take off your hat. Let me see your face. So I, she goes, how do I know you? I said, well, I was here a couple weeks ago, you know, and and you served me that BLT, and she goes, oh my God, that BLT is adjective, adjective, big. Uh, Words I can't repeat here, right? And uh, and I said, uh, yeah, amen, it was big. And she goes, uh, she goes, so what brings you in tonight? And I says, oh, I ordered one of your pizzas. And she goes, Oh, that pizza is adjective, adjective, really good. You guys can fill in the blanks. So, and uh, I said, I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping it is. And she goes, uh, she goes, you must work, work in the neighborhood. And I says, I do. And she goes, where do you work? I said, at the 
at the United Methodist Church. She goes, oh, really? She, and I, she goes, what do you do there? And I says, uh, well, I'm the pastor. She goes, oh, adjective, I need to change my language. You know, I, like there was a part of me that I just didn't want to admit who I was or what I did because my fear is, my fear is next time I go in there, she's going to change her behavior just because she knows I'm a pastor. Which is nice, but I wish she would change her behavior because she knows Christ. You know what I'm saying? And now my fear is that because she knows I'm a pastor, it might be an obstacle for her. So I pray for her, but pray that we all have the opportunity to help people realize that this church is full of broken people, is full of sinners is full of people who use adjectives, right? You don't have to admit it. I'm, I'm going to claim it, right? We're not perfect. God's not calling us to be perfect. God is calling us to be perfected in his love. And that's the sign of a true renovation of heart. That we go back to the word. And we have an advantage over that congregation and choir from some two, three thousand years ago. They had the word made of paper. We have the word made flesh, known as Jesus Christ. Amen? And so my prayer for you today would be to allow God to continue because it's going to be a life lifelong process of renovating your heart for the sake of his glory for the sake of transforming our families our communities our church and the world amen would you pray with me a gracious and loving god we do pray for your constant constant renovation going on in our hearts that we would stand on your promises on your love and on your grace that we would be transformed first and then be an offering of your love to the world for the sake of transformation let it begin with us let it begin with me Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like to contact the church for more information or to speak with one of our pastors, please call us at 440-942-9068. Background music for this recording provided by bensound.com. Welcome to this week's sermon from the Willoughby United Methodist Church. Wow. Can I just say wow? Is that okay to say wow? 
Have you felt the presence of God in this place yet? Yes. Amen. So we're in the midst of, well, wrapping up our, our Renovate series, and today is the big reveal. And so we've been learning about um, the book of Nehemiah and how Nehemiah responded to God placing a God-sized dream on Nehemiah's heart and him stepping out in faith, uh, confronting, well, not confronting, but, but uh, getting affirmation from a king and going and rebuilding a community, uh, so much more than just rebuilding a wall. Um, he rebuilt a community and stirred within them the hearts of his people, and it's not changing. Is this? It says it's on, but it's not. There we go. So we've been studying renovate, building a life with God, and and today is the big reveal. The, the 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 big reveal of technology tends to work against us sometimes. And so there we go. The big reveal. I told you it was coming. And uh and so when we started this series six weeks ago we had the, we had you walked into the sanctuary and you had to be careful where you sat because there were all these rocks on, on the pews. You remember that? For those of you who were here, you remember that? And then during the sermon or, or during the service, we handed out uh, um, Sharpies. And we invited you to write down something that you wanted to, to put in the trust of God for this Renovate series for these six weeks. And so everybody responded. And you'll notice that uh, the rocks are gone. Right? But we didn't just throw them away because as I stated in the pastoral prayer, we've been doing this thing, you all been doing this thing for 200 years. Right? And so some of the things we have to be reminded of is that we occasionally have to, we have to put our trust in God. And so it's my understanding that you, you all in celebration of the 200th anniversary planted a tree just outside the church here. Everybody with me? Well, what we did, what Mark Banky did for us, and he did an amazing job, is he took those stones and put them around that tree. Because not only do we, are we reminded of where we've been, but we're reminded that we're fully rooted in Christ and that we're going to place our trust in him for the next 200 years and beyond. Amen? And so... Um, I mean, he just like I, I I just wanted to go out and throw him throw him around the tree and call it a day and and I come over after he texted me and he says yeah I, I did it and and I thought oh my gosh he really created a masterpiece and so so that's our big reveal um, for the things that you entrusted to God moving forward that we are going to trust in God as He leads us um, today tomorrow and beyond. So, I want to say this. You do not depend on your own eyes when your faith is in focus. You with me on that? You don't depend on your own eyes when your faith is in focus. Because God calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. You with me? 
And so, the Scripture tells us this, that God promises to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. The young shall see visions, and the old shall dream dreams. So, that leads us to understanding what our visions and vision and values are for the next year. And we believe that we are created for worship. Now, I want to I want to caution you if I say we're created for worship and you say uh, that's what I'm here for today in this hour, may I might have to go a little long so it may be an hour plus. Um, I'm going to challenge you to say that worship is more than just one hour on Sunday. We have a new custodian on board who, uh, if you've noticed a difference in the building, um, it, it, it's, it's because we have two amazing co- custodians to begin with, right? Um, but this one particular custodian that does uh, the full-time work during, during the week, you know what he does? He goes and he finds something without being told and puts a spit and polish on it and a shine like you wouldn't believe. And then he moves on to the next. And so I, I asked him one day, I says, uh, I said, Ronnie, where, where, where do you get that work ethic from? And he said, well, when I, when I am working, I am bringing glory to God. I see it as an act of worship. Can you imagine that? Imagine that everything that we do can be an act of worship to bring glory to God. As a parent, as a husband, as a school teacher, as a pilot, I'm running out of jobs, but you know what I'm saying, right? Everything we do can be an act of worship for bringing the glory to God. And so this is how we do it. This is how we do it. No, just uh, that wasn't in my notes, um, but but we do it with open hearts, open minds, open doors here at Willoughby United Methodist Church, and we have a mission statement on what we're called to do by God, and that's to love and serve God, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of lives. And so as a result of having a mission statement, we created a vision statement on how to carry that mission statement out. And that vision statement is connecting people to God and others through worship. Through worship. Did you feel connected to God in worship this morning? I know I did. Like I had, I don't know if you could see, but I I had some hands raised up there. and I was singing, glad they... You are so glad that they had me muted, but I was singing, right? Um, but we're, we're trying to connect people to God and others and through worship. And, and when we can take on that mindset that worship is more than just Sunday morning, worship is, is everything we do, then we're going to connect people to God, sometimes without even trying. Amen? So, we have a formula that we'd like to utilize in carrying out this mission statement. And the first is to accept people as they are, worshiping in God's love, right? If we're an act of worship and everything we're doing is for the glory of God, we're doing it with joy, amen? And we're worshiping in God's love and we're loving others in God's love. So we're accepting people wherever 
they are at, whether they're whether theologically they're a retired seminary professor or somebody who just gave their life to Christ. We want to be a place that can accept them no matter where they are. And even if they haven't accepted Jesus yet, that's okay too. Amen? And how we do that are, some, are, are through some of the ministries that we offer through worship, through Open Door, through Vacation Bible School, through the Tikva House, having a partnership with them, through the McKinley Center and community dinners and so on and so forth, accepting people where they're at so that we can connect them to Christ and to, to others. Connecting them through, to Christ and through others, that's our call. And, and I wish you could, would, would join us on Wednesday nights and see some, see, see some of the amazing stuff that's happening in, in the transformation that's a, that's happening down there. It, it's, uh, it's an awesome place to be on Wednesday night, I can tell you that. Next we are, once we accept people and connect people and train, our, our next step is to train them and to nurture them in God's love, to train and equip for ministry, to be able to do, um, Our hope is to have these three components of a small group, mission-oriented, relational-loving-oriented, and to also have a Bible-learning component. So in other words, we're on the journey of engaging the head, the heart, and the hands. You with me? The head, the heart, and the hands. That's what we're called to do. And we can do that through small groups or, or ministry opportunities or like... Bill shared with us on the mission trip. What a, what a, like, what a great day to show that today on the big, on the day of the big reveal, right? To see the work that is being done by the body of Christ in action. Until we attain, one of the reasons why we want to invite people to grow in these small groups that we're offering is until we attain all the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person should be always attaining to the measure of Christ's full statute. In other words, we should always be growing in Christ, learning, studying, praying, serving. You with me? Okay, if you're asleep, I'm going to wake you up. All right? But this is what we're, this is what we're, our hope is that we're always continuing to, to grow to, into the likeness of Christ. And then finally, as we accept people, connect people, train people, then it becomes our mission of sending people out into the community and into the world, outreaching to God's world. So it becomes cyclical, a spiral, not inward, but outward. Accepting people as they come in, connecting them to Christ and others, training them and equipping them to do ministry, and then sending them out in the world. Does it make sense? Anybody I want to argue with me? No? Good. All right. Come on. So, I read that opening scripture about uh, having dreams, right? And this is our dream. This is our dream. Matt Redman puts it this way, in the end, worship can never be a performance, something you're pretending or putting on. It's got to be an overflow of your heart. Worship is about getting personal with God and drawing close to God. That's what worship is out. So when we're talking about 
everything being an act of worship, you're continually drawing to the nearness of God, drawing closer to God. And as a result, you can't help but radiate God's love. And one of the ways that we seek to do this is through multi-generational or having a multi-generational congregation, multi-generational worship, multi-generational children's studies, uh, multi-children, youth, and adult, everything multi-generational. And so Pat Norris pulled me aside earlier today, and she goes, I hope it's okay. I, I've, got, uh, I've got four youth that are going to be serving communion. And I'm like, oh my gosh, drop the mic. That's real God-like stuff happening there. Amen? That's a good thing. One of the things that I hope that we would expand our scope is our connection with Royal Family Kids Camp. It's so moving to, to think maybe just a moment you can transform the life of a child who's been abused and neglected, who's been left for, for nothing. The hope is that we could love on these kids and, and that their prayer life would change from, God, please don't let mommy's boyfriend come in and visit me tonight, to, thank you, Lord, that Willoughby United Methodist Church cares for me, that somebody prays for me, That somebody loves me. Another hope and dream is the the Kids Hope Mentoring Program. I've shared stories about the mentoring program and how one hour a week with a child can transform their lives. The first student that I was assigned to, I came to find out that his father was in prison, his mother was living on the streets addicted to opiates. And... He was left. He almost became a ward of the state, but his aunt and uncle said, "Uh, we'll take you in. And so when I first met this boy, he was on the verge of flunking every class. He was disruptive in class, non-compliant, as the teachers and principals would say. And so I, I, I was appointed as his mentor, now, I wanna, I wanna assure you that you don't need a whole lot of training to be a, a mentor as far as academics go, because it's about building a positive relationship. It's about radiating, radiating God's love into the likes of a child who's been cast aside. And within six weeks, the principal pulled me into the office. Boy, you talk about deja vu. The principal pulled me into his office, into her office and said, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it with that boy. Because he went from almost failing to having C pluses. And the teachers have hope that he can become a B and A student. And she goes, on top of that, he's not disruptive in class anymore. He's actually becoming a class leader and helping other kids settle down and pay attention. What are you doing? And I said, well, I'm showing up one hour a week, each week, on the same time, at the same day, and I'm letting him beat me at every game we play. 
She goes, you're letting him beat you? I said, no, I'm not letting him. He's beating me. I, I got a competitive nature. I can't, I can't win. But, but somehow, some way, it's boosting his self-esteem. And you know, at the end of that year, we'd have a, have an end of year party for the kids, celebrating the accomplishments that they made. And come to find out, he, at the party, he came up to me and gave me this little card. And um, he said, open it, open it. And I opened it up, and it was a $5 gift card for Chipotle. Yeah. And a little bit later on after that, his aunt came over to me, and she goes, I just got to tell you the story behind the gift card. And I says, okay. She goes, we've been noticing that he's been Every time he finds a quarter or a dime or something, he, he's been putting it away and putting it away. And she goes, for three and a half months, he's been squirreling away these pennies, dimes, and nickels. And he spent it all on this gift card. And you know, I still haven't, I, I still haven't cashed it in. I can't bring myself to it because it's a reminder of an impact made. God's love being radiated, an act of worship being proclaimed, a boy's life being saved. Don't you want to be a part of something like that? Don't you want to be a part of a movement where you're radiating God's love to the world, to the community? Don't you want to partner with our our school teachers and say, how can I help you succeed? How can I help your students succeed? That's the dream I have. My last question would be, what dreams do you have? What ministries are, are bubbling up in, in your heart that you want to find the strength and the courage to give God a chance on? Because that's what we're here to do, is equip people for ministry, to radiate God's love to the world and to make an impact, a holy impact. An impact like the night on which Jesus gave himself up. He took bread and blessed it and gave thanks and said, this is my body as he broke it. Take and eat. I am broken for you out of love, he said. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. I could get choked up just thinking about it. That he would look into the crimson cup and say, take and drink, for this is my blood poured out for you and for many for, for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to take it and be a partner with me in ministry to the world. I wonder as God reveals Himself to us if we would respond. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these common elements of bread and fruit of the vine that they would become for us the body and blood of Christ, that as we partake, we become one with each other and one with you in mission to the world. 
with a resounding yes, we would say yes to your invitation of love and we'd allow everything we do become to become an act of worship to bring glory to your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like to contact the church for more information or to speak with one of our pastors, please call us at 440-942-9068. Background music for this recording provided by bensound.com.